Hello, I'm Llewellyn King, the host of White House Chronicle. My wife said to me the other day, uh, we're all survivalists now. The reason was that she was stocking up on bottled water and canned goods because we were expecting bad weather and almost axiomatically, we were anticipating a possible blackout, a loss of electricity. As the weather, uh, presumably driven by global warming, has deteriorated, as storms have gotten worse, uh, we've all come, become in our way, as my wife said, survivalists. Uh, to talk about the state of electric supply and what can be done to improve it, and also how we're going to bring in renewable energy with its variable times of availability into the system. I have two experts, two remarkable men who know a great deal about this from the point of view of the moderately sized electric utility, not the great BMS, but the moderately sized ones. They are David Naylor, president and CEO of Rayburn Electric Cooperative in Rockwall, Texas, and Peter Londa, president and CEO of Tantalus Systems in Norwalk, Connecticut. Welcome to you both. Uh, David, how is the electric supply changing and why are we all uh, so apprehensive when bad weather rolls in? Well, I think the the, the changing is is as uh, as new people come into the into the territory and I, I think really a fallout from last year with the winter storm Uri, uh, certainly here in Texas, that uh, opened up people's eyes to a situation that I think, frankly, folks never really, really contemplated. So you've, you've got uh, certainly more folks who are attuned to the electric system that maybe had ignored it in the past or just complained whenever they got their electric bills. But uh, so, so you've, you've got that on one hand, and then you certainly have a difference in terms of as people are adding uh, the distributed generation and certainly have a different type of resource mix with renewables and intermittent energy that uh, is changing the way the, the, the power flows and you see uh, the use of the, of the system. Your company, Tantalus, serves the electric utility industry, and you talk to a great many utilities and work with them. Are they, is electricity supply getting more unreliable, or is that more of a perception? Um, so, Llewellyn, we, we support utilities that are truly focused on the distribution side of the power and electricity industry. And, and so just to distinguish that for folks today who might not be too familiar, with the utility industry in general, there, there are organizations that are in the um, realm of generation, uh, some in transmission and some in distribution, which is where the three of us live uh, in terms of how we consume power and how it's made available to us. Um, we have the good fortune of supporting over 210 um, utilities across the United States, Canada, and Caribbean Basin today. And, and that gives us a pretty wide perspective on the challenges that we're seeing emerge, which, which really are regional. Um, there are some key themes and secular drivers that are impacting all utilities today, uh, but region by region, depending on weather patterns and, and susceptibility and investments in upgrades is really impacting um, the reliability and the resiliency of electricity. And, and, and Llewellyn, as, as I like to say, most of us don't really think about electricity anymore. 
we just think about it when we don't have it. And our witnessing certainly in, in with what's unfolded around the world because of COVID-19 and, and even today's form of the three of us being remote, the critical component to make this happen is electricity. So most people take it for granted. And as the world changes and new technologies are brought into the field, like David had just referenced, it has a cascading impact on the reliability of electricity. And, and that's what we're working aggressively and, and appropriately with a number of thought leading utilities to try to prepare for what's to come. Um, David, uh, where, are you, where is Rockwell, Texas? So Rockwell is just east of Dallas, Texas. We're about 20 miles from downtown Dallas. So, and you're, you, that's a rapidly growing area. So you're adding customers all the time. Is the supply keeping up with the demand? So, so I think the supply is keeping up with the demand. Um, now it may not be shaped the same and we're having to supplement to ensure that you know, when, when people uh, are, are getting up and they want to uh, either in the winter, like now turn on their heat or in the afternoon uh, when they come home from work. So, so we're having to, to work through those challenges from a shaping standpoint, but as far as adequacy of supply, there's, there certainly seems to be that. Now, again, it, it, it certainly is growing and we continue to, to move forward, but right now there's still enough uh, surplus to be able to meet the load. As our viewers and listeners probably know, I've been writing about electricity for half a century, and uh, I've never been through a period where there's such a sense of change and of insecurity of supply uh, as we're moving from traditional generation with coal-fired and gas-fired and uh, nuclear into a world of uh, solar and windmills, and of course the determinant of those two sources of energy, uh, carbon-free though they may be, is that the wind doesn't always blow and the sun doesn't show shine at a particularly convenient time. It shines just after we've gone out to work and it stops shining just before we come back. So those two heavy load points, which you mentioned, are not covered. How are you dealing with that in Texas? So we're, we're dealing with it uh, through third-party contracts. Uh, we are looking at, uh, I mean, frankly, natural gas-type resources. Uh, we've actually are also evaluating some batteries as to be able to supplement to where if the, to your point, the wind blows in a, in a different time that may not be desirable from the load shape, we can still utilize it maybe just a little bit later. Uh, you know, my experience has been uh, it's, it's a lot easier to forecast the sunshine. It's a lot harder to forecast when the wind's blowing. And when that forecast is wrong, that's usually when you start having some, uh, some more. Pete, the same question to you. You serve a large swath of the country. You must be familiar with the stresses from Canada to Texas. And so I, I think David has raised a couple of really valid points. Um, and, and to tease that out a little bit, the reference to shaping of the load and, and Llewellyn, to your comment, the variability of these new sources of power. So if, if, if we were to take a step back, the, the utility industry in general, some more so than others, have, have relied on a system that in many ways was designed 
back in the 1800s of a central source of generation flowing through a series of assets and a, and a comprehensive system for that matter, one of the most complicated machines we've ever seen, but flowing in, a, in, in, a, in the same direction through substations and down circuits and down feeders to utility poles and to our neighborhoods and eventually to our home. And so as, as David referenced, when things change, um, when people's consumption patterns change, that, that changes the shaping and the timing of when power needs to be delivered and where it needs to be delivered. delivered. And, and similarly to, to your comment, Llewellyn, on these new sources of cleaner energy or distributed energy resources in the form of solar, storage, um, and, and, and battery walls, I, those change the variability, it, it changes the variability of the grid. It changes the stability of the grid. And what we see with a lot of the utilities we support is the concern that utilities are going to lose control of what otherwise their system is designed to do, which is to deliver electricity. It has not historically been designed to also receive electricity at the home, at Walmart with solar panels on top of it or Home Depot, which are generating power, changing the load profile of that commercial building or the home, and in some circumstances actually generating power and feeding it back into the grid. And, and from, from our perspective, what we're working incredibly hard on and, and what I see across the utilities we support, regardless of where they're located, is the, the concern that control is what's at risk and that control being impacted by the variability of different sources of power that are coming into the grid at locations where the current infrastructure was not really designed to support. And that, by, that, control, that, by control, you mean data? You mean a much greater so, so actually, surveillance so, of the system? Yeah, and I think David could probably add even that much more insight, but control meaning the assets and the delivery of electricity and the consumption, the way in which we can regain control as technology is deployed or these new types of devices are deployed in the field is connecting to those devices and accessing data so that the utility has situational awareness. And from there, control of new assets but I, when I'm referencing control, Llewellyn, I'm sorry if I confused, and it's really at the utility level from an operational perspective, the actual delivery of electricity and the protection of the assets, transformers, connectors, insulators, feeder circuits, substations. It's the control of those assets that I think is in real peril today. And Peter, I'll tell you one of the things we've seen too, to that point, uh, certainly as these uh, primarily coal-fired resources are retired, the way the system was designed, all of a sudden, one of the key uh, drivers of, you know, you go back in time when that, that grid was, and those transmission facilities were built, all of a sudden, you've got a huge resource that's gone. And that has had a big impact, uh, and it's more of a regional impact in our, what, we, what we've seen. Um, the other piece is, uh, while on the distribution side, our, uh, our members have installed meters, uh, you know, the, the smart meters, the, where they can handle a lot of the distributed resources. What's interesting is on the wholesale side, 
we find ourselves limited based on what we're allowed to do. And, and it's not, not a Rayburn decision. It's a, it's, it's a grid management decision where, where the regional entity has said, okay, these meters are just cannot flow backwards. So if we have enough distributed resources uh, that are wanting to push power back to the grid, it can only go so far before we're forced to say, guys, I'm sorry, we can't take any more of it because uh, our, the rules that we have to operate by won't permit it. And the administration is uh, proposing build a better grid with money from the infrastructure bill. The money is appropriated, it's uh, signed into law, it's coming. Uh, and they would like to build more transmission to get more renewable energy from where it's available, where the resources are, mostly in the Midwest and the uh, far west, and bring it east, et cetera, which means more transmission lines. But nobody wants transmission lines in their backyard. And if you're on the way between the customer and the point of generation, you're terribly interested in seeing a new transmission line. Um, you have countered that, I understand, David, by increasing um, uprating things on your own system. Uh, how is that working? So, Llewellyn, you're exactly right. Uh, folks love to have the electricity. They don't want the transmission lines going through their property. And, and certainly as a, as a cooperative, we're, we're in the rural areas and uh, as well as some suburban areas now, this growth has, has come in. And so what we've tried to do, uh, because we, you know, we want to be good neighbors and, and we certainly understand uh, the, the desire not to have transmission uh, in, in folks' backyard, across their property. And so to where we can, what we try to do is use the existing easements. Can we upgrade and maximize what we have within those easements? Uh, so can we change out the conductors to upgrade? Um, just because of load growth, we've already had to upgrade our conductors three different times just over the last five years, uh, just to I, be able I'm to sure handle that, the uh, capacity. That knows what a conductor is, but I'm not sure that many of the rest of us do. What is a conductor? I apologize. Hey, we, we, get, we get caught up in our vocabulary of what we're used to, to talking. So a conductor is just simply is just the wire. It, it's what uh, it connects the poles and ultimately gets, uh, you know, gets to the, to the home. But, By uh, simply rewiring your system, uh, you're able to, to move more electricity from the known sources. Right. Uh, do you see a lot of this going on, Peter, across the country? Um, you, you would reference data. And, and a lot of what our organization is focused on is helping utilities access data, not only from meters, but different types of equipment throughout the distribution grid. From that data, um, we've started to, with some of the very smart folks in our organization um, who can outclass me in this conversation by far, but who've started to work on data analytics um, using some AI or artificial intelligence, intelligence enabled capabilities. And so to your specific question, Llewellyn, we have a utility in Colorado that we support, longstanding um, relationship and longstanding partner to our company. And from pulling data from really power quality data, so checking changes in things like voltage and current, to you and me, that means can we plug our computers into the wall or our TVs into the wall and not have them fry? 
um, or, or short. Um, but we've helped a utility specifically pinpoint where they have susceptibility and issues on distribution lines or conductors the way David has described them in an area that's very remote, remote through a mountainous valley where it's, it's just a long run with, with no um, access in terms of vehicles other than four-wheel drive vehicles or ATVs. Um, and, and based on the data, we've helped that utility pull forward almost $600,000 in their capital budget that was scheduled three years out. They've actually pulled that forward to start making the upgrade in that distribution line or that conductor in 2022 because they saw vulnerability and issues unfolding with that line that not only could lead to outages, but potentially even worse lead to a forest fire. And so data is key to then helping the utilities do exactly what David's just articulated, updating the lines, increasing the capacity of those lines um, that ultimately help a little bit more in balancing of the grid. We're in a very data intensive industry. And I think to, to Peter's point, I mean, uh, the, the challenge is putting the data in a manner such that it can be actionable. Uh, we've, we've accumulated a lot of data and that's, you know, we're trying to do the same uh, similar type things to, to that as well as let's, let's see what the data shows. Let's see where we go. Um, you know, we're not just upgrading everywhere across our system. We're trying to be strategic and where does it make sense? Uh, where is the demand? Where's the need for it? And because, uh, because again, as, as a cooperative owned by our members, every dollar that we spend ultimately is paid by the, by those members on, who are buying electricity from us. And we've, we've got to make sure they're getting good value for their investment. The public is concerned as far as I can discern uh, about two pushing issues, two pressing issues when it comes to electricity supply. One, is there going to be enough uh, at a reasonable cost? And the second one is, uh, is it going to be carbon neutral? Is it going to be renewable? Um, those two are in some conflict, aren't they? Very much so. I think you've, you've, you've picked up on this theme a few times, Llewellyn, which resonates strongly with us. Um, I, I, I like to summarize it for the utility industry. Right? They are being asked to support the electrification of everything. Just look at what's unfolding in the transportation industry and your and my passion for the F-150. Um, and what Ford's doing with that. But electrify everything, meaning increase the amount of power that has to be delivered, generated and delivered through the distribution grid while simultaneously being expected or asked to decarbonize. That, that, that puts the utilities in our opinion at an inflection point. It puts the grid at an inflection point where it's, it's a serious dilemma in terms of how utilities respond to the call to electrify transportation and other aspects of our life while simultaneously being responsible for reducing their carbon footprint. And from our, from our view, the only way to do that is to truly modernize the grid, digitize it, meaning make devices digital in nature, much like every other industry that we rely on today. And from those digitally connected devices, access the data that David and his team need 
to get the right data to the right person at the right time for the utility to then make the most prudent decisions from an economical perspective, from an operational perspective, and from an environmental perspective. This is, uh, it, it's really a tipping point, Llewellyn, that gets guys like me and, and members of our team very excited. And I'm sure similarly is both exciting and frightening to David and his colleagues trying to run the utility because it, it's, it's fundamentally changing their business. It is, and and I will I will have to add. So, some as somebody who has a fleet of uh, of Chevy vehicles, you know, Silverado has has one coming out as well. But uh, uh, no, you're you're exactly right, Peter. Uh, you know, the 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 challenge that we have certainly living this day to day is we can't just jump there with the technology we have today. So we've got to do something in the in the short term. And how do we bridge that gap? Because uh, a lot of these resources that we would normally utilize are, you know, they're thirty-year investments, and it's it's a question of what's the most appropriate use of the funds, knowing where people want to get. And and I'll say too, we're mindful of the whole life cycle. Um, uh, so it's, it's, it's not just the consuming of the, the renewables, the here and now, but what happens when they're decommissioned or what happens when they're being built and trying to make sure that we're balancing that whole, that whole picture. Um, but yeah, it's, it, that is certainly a, a challenge and, you know, you just, we just, uh, take it day by day. I'd like to ask you something, David, and that is. Uh, with renewables, you buy a lot of electricity, generate some and buy more and redistribute it. Um, do you have a preference to wind or solar? Which one do you find the easiest to integrate into your system? So, so our system is 90% residential. And I'll just tell you, solar lines up a lot easier or a lot better uh, with our, the shape of our load profile than wind. Uh, certainly in West Texas, that wind tends to blow at night. Uh, now, we could get coastal wind, and that has a little better profile, but uh, solar has been our, we, we found that to fit a whole lot better uh, with our load profile, uh, again, being 90% residential. That's very interesting. I'll go back to what uh, Peter Londa has said about the F-150 and explain it. That is the most popular pickup truck in the country is the Ford F-150. And Ford is building an electric version, which will be out fairly soon. And everybody's got sort of bated breath waiting for the F-150 because if it is adopted by people who use pickup trucks in their work, plumbers, builders, etc., this is a revolution. Uh, it changes demands on the electric system, for example. Those trucks will be in use by day and charging by night. And uh, it will be an acceleration of the electrification of everything. If the F-150 electric really is widely adopted and becomes, uh, and it's, it's a Chevrolet competitors and it's Toyota competitors. Uh, there you are, David. I don't want to leave you out there. Uh, when these uh, trucks come along, if they're widely adopted, things are going to be very different. Uh, suddenly, we will have electrified in a way. It won't be a few elite people in California, say, driving an electrified car, an electric vehicle. 
uh, although this is now pretty universal, but it will be part of the muscle of America, the working truck of America is the pickup truck. I own one, I happen to know that I have for years, it goes back to when I, when I had horses, but uh, I've always liked pickup trucks. And uh, I know I have not put down my name for a, <laughs> for a new Ford, but I will one day probably. Peter, I hear you've even put your name down. Um, well, I, I have a uh, an F-150, although the Silverado, and I imagine just a matter of time until the Ram comes out with a similar version. Um, yeah, Llewellyn, yes, I, I had submitted my name uh, and $100 payment to uh, the Ford company to put, put a reservation in. I haven't yet heard back as to what the timing of that will be, but it'll be in the next year or two, I would imagine, if, if not sooner. Um, and, and so a couple of data points for you on that. And, and the same unfolds with what Chevy is going to do with their Silverado. Um, there are two pieces of that puzzle, Llewellyn, to your comments, one of which is the amount of power that will be required to charge those vehicles at the end of the day or the end of the work time. But there's also a discharge capability of those utilities to power equipment on a construction site which changes the profile of how much load, how much power will be consumed at construction sites during the course of the day. So there's an impact during the day and the evening, but there's, there's an interesting data point for you. And, and it's, not, it's probably not precise, but from what we can gather on the extended range pickup trucks in general, from the research we've been able to gather, right, the expected amount of energy that's required to charge those devices is tracked in something called kilowatt hours, which would be very familiar to David and to me in terms of right, how many kilowatts are required sort of on an hourly basis. And David can certainly um, make that more explainable to everybody than I can. But on average, these extended range pickup trucks are expected to require about 19 kilowatt hours to charge. That's effectively the equivalent of six central air conditioning units running at the same house on the hottest day of the year. And so as we think about a 5% adoption rate across the country for electric vehicles, or soon and over time, a 20% adoption rate, you're talking about a significant increase in the amount of power that's going to be required to charge those vehicles. And I, I, we're not even talking about school buses yet or fleets, um, and simultaneously, a massive amount of power, if managed and accessible by utilities, as a controllable asset. It's effectively a storage device to offset generation or offset supply of electricity. So it, it's gonna change from our perspective, EVs in general, over the next three, five, seven, and 10 years, I believe they will be mainstream as- There will be a lot of data management too, when you start it, it, using that. Uh, how are you going to compensate the owner of the pickup truck for the electricity he's providing back to the system? That's our show for today. We hope the lights stay on so you can watch us and listen to us on Sirius XM. Until next week, cheers. Our program, White House Chronicle, is on offer as a podcast for you to enjoy. Full shows on Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, and all major audio platforms. Subscribe and take us with you in your pocket.